can turn to Psalm 42. Psalm 42. Let me read the subscript first above verse 1. With the choir direct, director, a, a masculine of the sons of Korah, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. My, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall, I, when shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with the sound of a shout of joy and thanksgiving, a a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you disturbed within me? Wait for God, for I shall still praise Him for the salvation of His presence. O my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore I remember remember you from the land of the Jordan, the peaks of Hermon from Mount Mizar, deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. By day, Yahweh will command his loving kindness, and by night, his song will be with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As a shattering of my bones, my my adversaries reproach me while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you disturbed within me? Wait for God, for I shall still praise him, the salvation of my presence and my God. I wanted to preach a sermon on emotions this year, and what better time to do that than during the Christmas season? If, if, if there's one month where most people experience the biggest variety and widest range of emotions, it's during the month of December. For some of us, it's the most joyful time of the year. For some of us, it's the, it's the opposite. Generally, Christmas time is often a, a roller coaster of emotions, a, a kaleidoscope of feelings, a full of ups and downs. We experience the, the joy of our children opening presents. Uh, the anxiety and stress of getting our family to the airport on time, and, and the anger of unresolved conflict with a family member you see once or twice a year. And then you grow older, and the, the grief of a deceased father or mother or sibling or child especially uh, raises its ugly head during this time of the year. Uh, the end of the year can also be a discouragement because... Now is when you think about all the goals that you had set for yourself excitedly at the beginning of the year, but 12 months later, many of those goals are still left unfulfilled. And all of these emotions and more can swirl around in our hearts like a, like a winter blizzard in the midst of Christmas carols and joys to the world. And so if that describes someone you know, or if it's you in any degree, Psalm 42 can help you manage your emotions in a way you might be unfamiliar with, in a way that blesses you instead of tears you down. Usually the issue when it comes to managing our vacillating emotions during Christmas is that we simply don't understand our emotional life at all. We've never been taught how our, our emotions work. We have our intuitions of how they work. We have uh, vague and simplistic uh, ideas about how our emotions function. But for most of us, our, our, our emotions are a, a big mystery. We don't manage our emotions very well uh, during Christmas because we don't manage our emotions very well at all. And for those who struggle with disordered emotions, emotions that don't seem to work very well, for, for those of us who feel like our emotions are impairing our lives in varying degrees, the book of Psalms is the book for you. Because the, the Psalms is many things, but one of those things it, 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 that the Psalms is, it's, it's, it's God's instruction manual 
for emotions like no other book in Scripture. John Calvin famously wrote in his preface to his Psalms commentary, he said this, I've been accustomed to call this book, I think not inappropriately, an anatomy of the soul. For there is not an an emotion of which anyone can be conscious of that is not here represented as in a mirror. Or rather, the Holy Spirit has here drawn to the life all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated. Psalm 42 exemplifies that. It, Psalm 42 uh, represents the, small, the, the psalm's overall grasp of our emotional life and how our hearts work in relation to God in a fallen world. And the, and the main theme of today's psalm is trusting God when you are isolated, when you are abandoned, when you are overwhelmed, and when you are ridiculed. But along with this central theme, there is much in this psalm that can teach us how our emotions work. Psalm 42, there is poetic beauty. You see this wide range of deep feeling. There is a a seesaw-like movement from despair to confidence. We go back and forth between complaints and trust. In Psalm 42, the psalmist is away from home. He is being taunted and oppressed by his enemies. He is deeply discouraged, but he is thirsty for God. So let's go to the, this psalm and let, let's let God's word, word heal and manage our emotions well. And, and the first lesson we learn about our emotions in Psalm 42 is found in verses 1 through 3. Point number one, your emotions are centrally tied to what you value. Your emotions are centrally tied to what you value. Uh, emotions make up our persons as image bearers of God. They, they come from Him. They help us understand and connect to the world like Jesus did. But what exactly are there? And this is not an easy question to answer. There are two general theories about what emotions are. One is that emotions originate in our bodies as physiological impulses or instincts to which our minds give meaning and shape. This view originates originally from Plato, and the notion behind the view is that our mind is superior or purer than the body. And the implication then is that we can't trust our emotions because they come from the quote-unquote, quote, animal part of our nature, and therefore we must use our minds through philosophy to master our bodies. The other theory is the opposite. It argues that the way we think about and value things is reflected in our bodies. The mind and not the body is the manager that drives the emotions. And and scripture leans uh, more toward the latter view, though there is some truth to the first view as well. At the end of the day, emotions probably originate both in the mind and the body depending on the situation. Sometimes the body will be the initiator of our emotions, and those emotions will get the upper hand. In other situations, our beliefs and our interpretations of events might seem to dominate us. But more important to the Bible than where our emotions come from is what our emotions do. And one of the most important things the Bible says about emotions is, is they are an expression of what we love or value. Jesus wept at Lazarus' tomb because he loved Lazarus. Jesus emptied the temple of the money changers because he valued the glory of God in the temple above all. My two boys, they love their toys. They treasure their toys. And when one of them want the same toy, you will observe a range of emotions. In the beginning, there'll be one boy full of happiness playing with a particular toy. And then you will look over to the other side of the room and you will see the other boy filled with envy 
that his brother is playing with the toy now he wants to play. You go from happiness and then envy, and then you wait a couple of seconds, and now there is anger and frustration as they're fighting back and forth for the same toy. And then when I decide who gets the toy, you will, full, you will find delight and happiness in one boy and sadness and weep, oh, a gnashing of teeth in the other boy. In the range of emotions displayed by two boys, one thing remains unchanged, and that is their love for the toy. When you get what you love, you're happy, but when you lose it, you're sad. What you care about shapes what you feel. Your emotions are always expressing the things that you love and treasure and value, whether you understand everything or not. That's what we see in verses 1 through 3. We find deep, intense, negative emotions because the psalmist feels like he has lost his greatest treasure in life, God. Four times in in verses 1 and 2, he mentions God. Verse 1, O God. Verse 2, for God, the living God. Second part of verse 2, when shall I come and appear before God? The psalmist calls God the living God in verse 2. He knows that his God is the fountain of all spiritual life. But the psalmist feels like he has lost the one that he loves more than anything and anyone in the world. He feels separated from God. And this inner separation... uh, brings with him great disturbance inside of his heart. He feels like he's behind a great wall and God is on the other side. And his emotions feel stronger than physical thirst. He says in verse 1, My my soul pants for you, O God. Verse 2, My soul soul thirsts for God. And, And these deep feelings that the psalmist is experiencing brings to mind a, an image he's, he has seen often in the desert of Israel. It's this image of a deer panting for the water brooks in a, in a dry and barren land. You see, during most of the time in Israel, there are many dry river brooks, many wadis, utterly devoid of water. And the psalmist's unquenched spiritual thirst and hunger reminds him of, 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 of many of a scene he witnessed growing up of a, a desperate deer panting, going from riverbed to riverbed, looking for water to sustain his life. The word pants in verse 1, cited twice, is, is a very strong word. It means utter desperation. It's found only one other time in in the Old Testament, in the book of Joel, describing the Armageddon. And and Joel Joel one twenty says, Even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water brooks are dried up. The occasion for the grief of the psalmist is found in the second half of verse 2. He he asks, "When, When shall I come and appear before God? He's referring to the temple in Jerusalem. For some reason... He's far away from home. He might be sick. He might be injured, unable to make the long trip to the city of the temple. He may have been taken captive by a foreign enemy. But this distance from the one that he loves above all things has left him in the dumps, in the depths of despair. And the result of that grief are found in verse 3. He says, My tears have been my, my, my food day and night. He's done more weeping than eating. The one who longed for a refreshing drink tasted instead the bitter water, the bitter water of tears. God, like water, is the source of his life, but his thirsty soul tastes only the, and drinks only the sorrow of his loss. And what makes matters worse is the psalmist's enemies and their response to the psalmist's suffering. His enemies see an opportunity to bring him down further still. They say to him in verse 3, where is your God? And and this mocking hurts him so much because he loves God in, in, in such a high degree. 
his response proves that God indeed is the highest treasure in his life. And yet in spite of the, the sorrow of the psalmist, what we find surprisingly in these first three verses, as well, in, as, well as in the entire psalm, is a model of a healthy emotional life. Psalm 42 is a picture of the quintessential emotional life because all the range and myriad of emotions you find in Psalm 42, they are rooted in his love for God. Love for God doesn't spare you from tough times and negative emotions. And that implies that not all negative emotions are bad. Negative emotions are not bad if they are connected to something worthy or something worth caring about. See, when your emotional life is tied to the trivial, when your emotions are wrapped with temporal, earthly matters, no matter how happy you may feel at times, that kind of emotional life is like a house of cards. It's only a matter of time when it will collapse. You see, if, you, if you're grieving for your, your wife or, or, or husband who's passed away, that is a healthy expression of sadness because it shows that you valued your spouse. But if you're grieving because you lost your favorite pencil and you're just weeping to death, you're, 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 you have an entirely different set of problems that we have to take care of. In, in verses 1 through 3, the psalmist is actually in the best place you can be because what he misses is God. What he wants is what God will surely give him eventually. There's no doubt about the worth of the object of the psalmist's affections. He's filled with sorrow, yes, but it's a good kind of sorrow. It's a sorrow that expresses the highest of values, a supreme love for God. One commentator wrote, when it is as natural for us to long for God as for an animal to thirst, it is well with our souls, however painful our feelings. Psalm 42 teaches us that our feelings are tied centrally to what we value. And next we learn that Corporate worship will help you feel better. Verse 4. In the dumps of this despair, the psalmist's memory goes to a place where he's certain he would feel better if he can only get there. Where to? The temple in Jerusalem. This was where the community of God's people gathered together to worship their creator. The psalmist is not content with a YouTube video of his favorite celebrity preacher in his room. No, he longs for public worship. In verse 4, he remembers that time. He says, These things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. With the sound of a shout of joy and thanksgiving, a, a multitude-keeping festival. He remembers the fellowship and the relationships that he had with God's people. It was this community who shared his view of the world, his approach to life. It was this group of people who had the same values that he did. And he remembers lifting up his voice with shouts of joy and thanksgiving, with multitudes of worshipers worshiping the living God. He was a son of Korah, which means he was a Levite. He would help the priests with the worship and sacrifice of the temple. So he was in the middle of things. He was in the middle of the action. Corporate worship is an oasis for parched souls under the beating sun of life. The church's oasis-like powers for the soul are, are true with respect to our emotions, too. Because Sunday, because Sunday morning has the power to renew your starving heart, Sunday morning, therefore, has the, the power to revive godly emotions as well. Showing up at church doesn't guarantee that, of course. Church can be hard for some of us. Sometimes church is hard because it's something personal going on. Sometimes it's the actual church that we're part of. Uh, maybe the music is bad. Maybe the sermons are weak. But even for the best of us, church will always be difficult 
from time to time for a plethora of reasons. All that being said, corporate worship and the public gathering of your church has incalculable potential for healing and shaping your emotions for good. First of all, just being with other people who love the same gospel that you do, who hope in the same Jesus Christ you, you hope in, remind us that you're not alone in the world battling your sin and Satan. This can happen when you, when you first walk in, the, 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 the ten minutes before the service even begins. Just being with a group of other believers, even a small crowd, help you it helps you remember that you're not crazy for believing in a dead guy on a cross. On Sunday mornings, you're reminded uh, what heaven will be like. You know, heaven is just Sunday morning times infinity. Sunday gathering is a taste of, he uh, of heaven to come. And, and all of this happened even before we started singing. Then comes the music. And the music of the songs that we sing together, they have the power to transform us, transform us as well. When we get to the when we get to church, we're all in we're all in different moods. Uh, we range from eager expectation to being really tired. Some of us are worried. Some of us are are just in a in a bad mood. But all that changes when we begin to sing together and raise our voices to the Lord, our, our mouths, our lips, our, our lungs, they work in harmony together to bring volume and pitch into the air around us. Sound reverberates out of our lungs, and then we physically connect to each other by this shared vibration through the room, through our ears, and through our chests. The melody and the harmony, the rhythm draws us into the words we sing, and when music is effectively played, it underscores the words with, with deep feelings, more than words without music could ever accomplish. Singing in the congregation keeps the pace of the reading of the song harnessed together in unity. And, and we focus on the lyrics of the songs much more on Sunday morning together than we do listening to songs by ourselves in the car alone. At the Lord's table once a month, we literally taste with our mouths and see with our eyes the goodness of the gospel, don't we? In the sermon, we learn new things about the character of our Savior and Father. Every Sunday morning, corporate worship and all the elements of a Sunday worship service, above all, remind you who you should prioritize and what's most important. And what you prioritize in life makes the biggest difference in how you express and experience your emotions. And this alone makes church on Sunday the best place to fix your emotional life. Point number one, our feelings are tied to our desires and loves. Number, point number two, corporate worship helps you feel better by reminding you what you should value above all. And in point number three, in verses 5 through 11, we learn the best way to deal with negative emotions. We learn the best way to deal with negative emotions. Point number three, when negative emotions fill your heart, the best response is engagement. It's engagement. There are good ways in dealing with your emotions, and there are bad ways you've been taught to deal with your emotions. The first pitfall that you need to avoid when trying to manage your emotions is resisting the lie that your emotions are everything, that they're the most important thing about you, that they're the thing that defines you the most. Because we live in a day and age where we think that what you feel is the most important thing about us. The highest good is our good feelings, so the worst thing you could do to somebody is not affirm everything they feel. And we, we, we express this erroneous value whenever we get it off our chest or we let off steam or when we're just being honest about saying what we feel. You know, emotions are important, but they're not the most important thing about you. 
Scripture says that your faith in God and your relationship to Him and your obedience to His Word is what is most important in life. You see, in Psalm 42, what is most important about the psalmist is not the powerful emotions that he's experiencing, but the most important thing in this psalm is what his faith is doing in the midst of these powerful emotions. This is what is most important about yourself. Now, the second pitfall you can fall into when dealing with your emotions is the exact opposite of the first pitfall. And that's when you're told that your emotions don't matter. People will say to you, just suck it up. You know, your emotions, they're like diseases that need to be avoided at all costs. And and sadly, we find this sort of thinking in in conservative circles, in, in churches, We're called to to be stone-cold Calvinists, Stoics, independent, strong. And the idea behind this is that all negative emotions are bad, and the reason you feel bad is because you just don't have enough faith. Psalm 42 tells us that this sort of thinking is incorrect, because in Psalm 42 you have strong, abiding faith along with powerful negative emotions hand in hand. See, when a loved one dies, you better feel sadness. The sadness shows how much you love the person. You better feel angry when you see evil committed against those you love. Your anger can be an expression of of this possession of clear moral values. Even anxiety can can be a good thing for you if it, it makes you focus on what you've been lazily neglecting. Fear can be healthy if it motivates you to look over your shoulder at night in a dangerous neighborhood. In Psalm 42, the negative emotions, they are motivating the psalmist to turn to God. So then, how do we deal with our emotions? How do we deal with our emotions? Let me give you one word. Engage. Engage your emotions. We don't think emotions are everything about us. And we don't think that they're nothing. We walk the middle road, and we look at our emotions with eyes wide open. And that's what the psalmist does in verse 5. He says, Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why are you disturbed within me? In the first half of verse 5, the psalmist is interrogating himself. And what you see, you see a few things in verse 5. You see that the psalmist doesn't look away. He, he doesn't ignore what's going on inside of himself. He looks clearly at the emotion that has invaded his life. And then he identifies what he finds. And he, what does he find? He finds despair. He, he finds disturbance. And then he decides how to respond only after he has identified with what he's found. He says, wait for God. I see it. I know what it is. I've asked questions. I've received answers. And now I'm going to act. And the action is that I'm going to wait for God. See, when you engage your emotions, you first need to be aware that the feeling even exists within you. Identify what you're feeling. You you don't even have to come up with a specific name for the emotion. Simply be aware that something is happening inside of you. After you identify the emotion, examine the emotion. Because your feelings, they're They're always telling you something about what you love and what you value and what you care about. What are your emotions telling you? What are they saying about your relationships? What are they tempting you to do? How are your emotions affecting your relationship with your loved ones, with Christ, with your church family? You want to ask questions like, why am I feeling this? What am I reacting to? 
Why is this hitting me so hard? Why isn't this affecting me the way it normally does? How does, the, how does this emotion make me want to behave? See, in verse 5, the psalmist is asking his soul the cause of his despair. Why is there such a disturbance inside of his heart? Charles Spurgeon wrote, To search out the cause of our sorrow is often the best surgery for grief. Self-ignorance is not happiness. In this case, it is misery. The mist of ignorance magnifies the causes of our alarm. A clearer view will make monsters dwindle into trifles. I was standing in line to get a salad last week. Yes, I did get salads. I was up for my order, and there was no server to take my salad order. I was just standing there, and I felt something within me. And so I looked at it. I identified what it was. And you know what it, what it was? There was impatience. There was low-level anger. And then I asked myself, what did my anger want me to do? And my anger was tempting me to give the, the, serv the, the server this kind of Sure, yeah, no, kind of that kind of response, kind of not overtly, kind of a passive-aggressive kind of response. Then I asked myself why I was feeling so impatient, and, and the answer was that I had a lot on my plate that day. I had to study for a sermon on managing emotions. I asked myself what was I valuing in the moment, and what was, it, what was I valuing? Satisfying my hunger. I was valuing my schedule. And so in that situation, I identified the emotion. It was anger. I, I thought about the cause of my frustrations. I was busy. I had, a lot of, I had a lot on my plate that day. See, I was engaging that emotion. And now, when you arrive at that point, and you recognize that emotion within yourself, You've examined it. You're asking questions about the emotions you're feeling. You're asking what your emotions are communicating about what you love and value. Then, after all those sorts of questions, you evaluate the emotion according to God's Word. You evaluate. You identify. You examine. And then you evaluate. What are you feeling that is good and godly? And legitimate, what are you feeling that is sinful and selfish? For me, there was no little legitimate reason that I had not to be kind and friendly to my salad server. I was, I was waiting for 30 seconds, you know? It wasn't like I was waiting for two hours. You know, it's 3 o'clock. I'm like, hello, I've been waiting two hours. It was 45 seconds. He had something to do as well. Why were my responsibilities more important than his? Why was my hunger more valuable than his dignity? Yes, wanting to steward your time is, is a good emotion, but for that emotion to lead to anything but kindness and, and a good attitude was putting my life, was giving my life too much of this sinful and selfish importance. See, we identify, we examine, we evaluate and then we act. And our actions are Godward. Our response comes from a mind that remembers that God is watching. Our response comes from a heart depending on his, his spirit for strength. And for, for me in that situation, I just needed to see it from God's perspective. And that was enough for me that when the server came, I smiled, I was kind, I was friendly from beginning to end. What do you do when fear, when anger, when grief, when guilt, when shame overwhelms you? You identify the emotion, you evaluate it, you dissect it, you ask questions, where does it come from? You put it through the filter of God's word if you're having trouble. You ask a friend, hey, I'm, I'm, hey, I'm feeling this, I, I'm thinking about this, and, and and you're, and you're asking your friend to help you, and then you act. You turn to God in faith with the heart of willing obedience. See, the 
psalmist takes his soul to task in the first half of verse 5. And then he turns to God, and then he, he acts. He tells his soul, wait for God in the second half of verse 5. He pours out his heart to the living God, the, the God who is real. The psalmist rests in him. He hopes in God. He exercises faith. He's ready to wait until the Messiah returns, and he's determined to praise him until the salvation of his presence. This is a reference to the end when Israel's Messiah returned with his kingdom on his shoulders. The psalmist is ready to wait for God because he believes that God will keep his promises to judge the wicked. He believes that God will save the faithful. He believes that God will fill the world with blessing. He believes that the Lord will act on his behalf either in ten years or when he dies in heaven. The psalmist believes that he will join again with all those of like-minded and praise of God, whether that's in twenty years or when he goes home to heaven. The way you... The way believers, the way people who believe in heaven operate in the present is that they live in the future in heaven and they look at the present as if it was the past. Right? That's how you approach life. I'm overwhelmed with trouble and emotions and my heart of faith goes to the future in heaven and then I look back on my present and I operate accordingly. See, when you're always living in heaven in the future, it puts everything in perspective in the present. And then you go, you know what? It's not so bad. I'm in heaven. This is nothing. I can deal with this. That's what the psalmist is doing. Again, Charles Spurgeon, commenting on verse 5, says this. As though he were two men, the psalmist talks to himself. His faith reasons with his fears. His, his hope argues with his sorrows. He asks, these present troubles, are they to last forever? The rejoicing of my enemies, are they, are they more than empty talk? My absence from the solemn feasts in Jerusalem, is that a perpetual ex exile? Why this deep depression, this faithless fainting, this chicken-hearted melancholy? When emotions overwhelm us, be fully engaged. Be fully engaged with a heart full of faith in the Lord. This is the kind of emotional life Psalm 42 seeks to cultivate within us. The psalmist continues to do that in verses 6 through 8. What does waiting for God look like? First, there's honesty. He says, oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. You see, before you act on your emotions, sometimes it's just helpful to be like, you know what, I am, I am just so frustrated right now. I'm just so angry. I'm so worried. Like, I am just so sad. Just saying that first, identifying it can be so helpful. He turns to God. He tells his soul to wait. He tells his soul to wait. He, he then says, Therefore I remember you from the land of the Jordan. His, his, mind, his mind goes back to his past again. He, he's still in despair in verse 6. He's come to a clear resolution in verse 5. But his, his soul is still not risen. And so he turns to the past. He goes into the storehouse of, storehouses of his memory. And this is the way life usually works, doesn't it? You can get to the right answer. You can know theological truth. But that doesn't change everything at once, always, does it? That doesn't always lift you from these emotional lows. And so what does he do? He, he keeps fighting. He keeps trusting. 
He keeps praying. He doesn't turn to idols. He refuses to find rest in sinful sources of comfort. He, he, resi he resists joining his enemies who have rejected the Lord and now mock his faith. His prayer, his trust to God in the darkness of life is now fueled by this second memory in verse 6. Remember in verse 4, the, the writer of the psalm remembered the fellowship of God's people. I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. Verse 4, there was a sound of joy and a shout of joy and thanksgiving, thanksgiving this multitude. And now, in verses 6 through 8, the psalmist remembers the God of the fellowship. He says in verse 6, Therefore I remember you from the land of the Jordan, and the peaks of Hermon from Mount Mazar, deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. Mount Hermon is in the northernmost part of Israel. It is far from the temple in Jerusalem. The land of Jordan where he is living is, is basically, uh, it's in, it's, it starts in Mount Hermon. The headwaters start there and then it flows south. In verse 7, the psalmist puts words to what he's feeling. He puts words on what he's, what he's, he, what the emotions he's experiencing. He's drawing lines and shading, and he's adding colors. He's, he's like an artist painting a portrait. He was, he was in a drought back in verse 1, desperately wanting a drink of God's presence. Now he's under the flood of despair, drowning under an, under an, under an ocean of tears. You see the Jordan River? It, it starts from the peak of, of Mount Hermon, and then it goes down, and it rages southward over cliffs and hills, and the psalmist he feels like he's been run over by that mighty river. He feels like he's at the very bottom of the raging river, drowning. Jonah quotes this verse when he was in the stomach of the fish at the bottom of the ocean. In Jonah chapter 2, verse 3, Jonah says, For your hand cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current surrounded me. All your breakers and wavers passed over me. Jonah, he, in, the, in the belly of the fish, under the bottom of the ocean, he thinks about Psalm 42. He says, I remember a man who was in a situation just like mine. It felt hopeless. But don't miss this, brothers and sisters. Mixed together with these powerful emotions, is faith in the sovereignty of God. The waterfalls that he is at the bottom of, look at verse 7, they're your waterfalls. They're your breakers. These waves, they're, they're your waves. Mixed together with these powerful emotions is his faith in the sovereignty of God. Mixed together with all these powerful emotions is his faith in God's grace. Look at verse 8. By day, Yahweh will command his loving kindness. That's the Old Testament word for God's grace. In verse 3, he said that instead of eating food day and night, he ate his tears. But that's not all there was. Mixed in with those meals of tears and sorrow was his faith the sovereignty of God, in the grace of God, with those tears, there was also a song of love he played day and night. Verse 8, by day Yahweh will command his grace, and by night his song will be with me. God's songs of sovereignty and grace, they don't take away suffering. They do give you the strength to wait for heaven. What do we do in our nights of weeping? We sing as we cry. We pray as we sing. We trust as we struggle. See, we're always experiencing a mixture of emotions at, on any given moment of the day. You know, you can go to Home Depot and there's a machine there. You can create your own color of paint. It'll give you a limited number of options and you press the buttons and then 
The machine mixes those colors together, and out comes a unique paint color of your choice. And our emotions are, are, are like that, but there are a lot more colors when it comes to our feelings. And even during a wedding or a, fun a, a funeral, when one uh, emotion uh, dominates the other emotions, they don't just disappear. They're still hanging around in the background. Psalm 42 tells, the, tells us that in the mixture of all these, these negative kind of emotions, add faith to the mixture. Add the gospel. Add Jesus. Uh, put in prayer. Add going to church on Sunday, even when you feel like a wreck. Add, add fellowship. Add Bible in there. Mix it around. It'll make a difference. Verse 9 is a, is a great example of this mixture of the good and the bad. This mixture of the earthly and the divine. Look, notice verse 9. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? God is the psalmist's rock, and at the same time he's asking, why did you forget me? The word rock was David's favorite term for God. The writer is borrowing it from David, and David got it from Moses. And the rock is really a mountain. Imagine a mountain. Imagine that you're standing on Mount Everest with a group of people. Nobody is afraid the mountain is going to collapse. Nobody's going to be like, oh, is this mountain going to, uh-oh. No. You feel secure. You feel safe. This is the rock that God is. And so he has these, emo these emotions of God abandoning him. And then what does he add to the mixture? The rock of God. Take the rock and I'm going to throw it in the bucket of paint. This is how we wait for God. Gunner, 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 Gunnerson, Gunderson wrote, The psalmist has found a rock for his feet to stand on, but he's still underwater. That's the Christian life, right? You're under the water, you're drowning. You're standing on a rock. In verse 11, the, the psalmist repeats, repeats the refrain of verse 5. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why are you disturbed within me? See, in the, the new buzzword is resilience these days. It's, that's kind of a popular thing to say and to kind of go after. Resilience means you have the the ability to withstand or recover quickly from difficulties. It means toughness, it, to spring back into shape. Unfortunately, resilience is foreign to the scriptures. There's no resilience in Psalm 42. There is utter weakness depending on the strength of the rock who is our God. See, when your child dies too soon, there's no bouncing back from that. You don't bounce back from that. When your husband has left you and your kids hide dry for another woman, there's no bouncing back from that. There's no resilience. No, there's just waiting. You're just waiting for God. You're waiting for kingdom. Scripture doesn't teach resilience. It teaches patience endurance teaches perseverance and and you really set up you set yourself up for failure when you try to pursue resilience because when you when the resilience doesn't come you even feel worse that you're not bouncing back from something god doesn't ever expect you to bounce back from resilience is it belongs in the movies no all that god asks us in the tough times with the mixture of all these negative emotions, just wait. Just wait. When your friend is struggling, your ultimate goal isn't to fix them. Your ultimate goal is simply to wait with him or her. 
your friend is feeling every emotion imaginable, and, and, and you tell them, you know what? You know, all those emotions you're feeling, it's, no, it's normal. It's normal. There's no stoicism in Psalm 42. No stoicism. It's messy. It's a bloody battlefield. It's a tug of war. You tell your friend, hey, however long it takes, if it takes the rest of your life, I'm just going to wait for God with you. The psalmist ends. Wait for God. Wait for God. And with that, we're left with one more question to ask ourselves this morning. Is God worth waiting for? Is heaven worth the wait? Is an eternity of eternal joy worth the wait of a hard but very short life in comparison? Thomas says, verse 11, yes, I shall still praise him. It's coming, and I'm just going to wait. I'm going to wait for the end. And we know the end isn't some fairy tale ending because the verses that came before it were so real and raw and honest. So we can, we can be sure that the end is just as real and true. We can wait. We can wait through the hard Christmases and the hard holidays. And learning how to wait for God helps us manage our emotions for our good and God's glory. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that we have every spiritual resource that we need in, in, in your word. see every feeling of our hearts and you care you care so much you, you write psalms like this to help us and so many of us here where Lord there isn't a, a day a month where our emotions get the best of us but we pray that this psalm remind us to engage engage with the truth of the gospel so that we might praise you until you return we ask in Jesus name